Welcome to They Create World, Episode 7, The History of the Arcade. If Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Now, Alex, today we're going to cover the history of the arcade in a special way because we're actually both in studio, which is how we're going to be recording these from now on. And frankly, I have no idea about the early history of the arcade. All I know about the arcade is I used to get up when I was a little kid. I went to Pizza Hut or I went to some sort of big arcade palace, I paid quarters, I played a lot of video game arcade, all the classics from the 80s and early 90s, some pinball. But that's really about it. But from what we've talked about in the past, the history of the arcade really goes back even an entire century. Exactly. I'm not sure that many people are aware of that today, but the arcade is a concept that is over 100 years old, though the arcades way, way back in the day, late 19th century, early 20th century, were much different than what we would consider an arcade in the 1980s or today, because in fact, they were not primarily a center for games. There were occasional games within the arcade, but it was really about experience and it was about novelty. And it was basically vaudeville for people that could not afford vaudeville. What's vaudeville? Well, vaudeville is the old pre-radio entertainment where you had stage shows. You had variety acts. So you might have actors, singers, jugglers, stand-up comics. Almost like a cabaret show. Exactly. It's what we would today kind of consider a cabaret show. And it's really what the radio took over. On the early radio and then even on early television, you would have variety hours where they would bring in a bunch of different acts. And that's really what vaudeville was. It was the theater, but it wasn't high class. It wasn't Shakespeare. It wasn't trained thespians being all dramatic. It was kind of a lowbrow form of entertainment and kind of a form of entertainment for the masses. But immigrants, of which there were quite a few, of course, in the late 19th century, couldn't even often afford to get themselves to a vaudeville show. And so that's kind of where the arcade came in, because this was one of the first venues for recorded entertainment. And in this case, we're talking about both audio entertainment, we're talking phonographs, mm -hmm. and then we are also talking early movies as well, before there were movie theaters. Oh, really? So, yeah. Movie theater didn't come about until the 1920s and 1930s. Well, the first movie theaters were really in the first decade of the 20th century. The first known Nickelodeon theater, literally an Odeon is a theater, French word for theater, nickel, nickel price, so a nickel Odeon. Hmm. Uh, the first Nickelodeon was opened in Pittsburgh in 1905, and the concept spread from there slowly through the second part of the decade. By the middle of the teens, you had sort of the first feature films being created, full-length movies, not what we would consider full-length today, not talking a 90-minute production. Right, more like uh, at most 20 minutes or something like that, I think. Exactly, but that's distinguished from a short, which was more like a five-minute piece or something, which the early movies were. And 
before you had projection technology, which mm -hmm. is basically the same concept that we continued to use right up until digital projectors started taking over in the last couple of years, putting a roll of film on a projector, before you had projection technology, these mm -hmm. films had to be viewed individually in a small cabinet rather than projected on a screen for everyone to see. And so that's part of where the arcade came into it. Oh, I, I think I understand. Um, if you look at some old cartoons, like a lot of the early Popeye cartoons, there's a few scenes in them where one of the characters will go to one of these things and they stick their eyes into some sort of show and little box and they put in a quarter, nickel, dime, whatever it is, and they actually rotate a uh, handle and that's how they see the video or the pictures as it just moves a whole bunch of pictures really quickly in front of your eyes at whatever frame per second it needs to be at. And usually those were really, really short, like not even a minute. Exactly. And that technology was called the mutoscope. And that was actually one of the real technologies that first brought the arcade to popularity. It was very much a movie business with sidelines with other kinds of pieces. And in fact, many of the early movie studio moguls were actually penny arcade operators before they were into the movies. Hmm. Adolf Zucker, who founded Paramount Pictures, he ran a penny arcade. Really? William Fox, whose name you would know because of the movie studio 20th Century Fox, hmm. was an arcade operator. Also, the founder of the Lowe's movie theater chain, which was one of the first very big movie theater chains in the country. And that same guy also then went on to create MGM Studios. He was also a penny arcade operator. So this was really the first form of audiovisual mass entertainment in the entire country was the penny arcade. And at that point, that was the focus of the arcade. It was not a space for games. It was purely just video entertainment. Some sort of, I pay a penny, I get to watch a little short. Exactly. Or hear a recorded message, because the phonograph was the first star of the arcade. The phonograph was invented in the 1870s, but this was a very complex piece of machinery for that period of time. And as such, it was an expensive piece of machinery. So if you were an upper-class citizen, or even a upper-middle-class citizen, you would certainly have a phonograph in your parlor. But if you were a working-class immigrant, there was no way you had a phonograph. It was just far too expensive. You wouldn't have it inside of your own home, so therefore it's a big-ticket item. Let's just spend a penny or two or five cents at the arcade in order to experience the novelty and have a good evening with the family. Exactly. And the first place that these phonographs started appearing were in places where people already congregated. So they were in railway terminals, which was a great place for them. They were in bars. They were in saloons. But there mm -hmm. was a real problem with putting equipment in some of these locations, especially the bars, because when you have a piece of equipment, a complex piece of equipment in a bar, and you have a bunch of drunk people in there, they're going to be a little rough with the equipment. They're going to be really rough with the equipment. <laughs> exactly. Plus, it was a perfect kind of entertainment for women and children, but... Women and children did not go to bars. I mean, children for obvious reasons because of the drinking age. Even back then, there was somewhat of a concept of a drinking age, though obviously not nearly as strictly enforced as today. And a woman in 19th century and Victorian times would not be in a bar or a saloon. That was not a ladylike venue at all. At least not any uh, woman of repute. 
Exactly. Plus, in addition to being hard on the equipment, in addition to an important segment of the population not being able to access the equipment, you also have the problem that the bartender or the railway terminal personnel are not going to be able to keep a constant eye on this equipment. And the coin mechanisms were not very sophisticated back then. Oh. So it was very easy at that time to slug the machines. That's the term they used was slugging. That's not reeling back your fist and hitting it really hard, obviously. But slugging it meant that you put a washer in it that was about the same size as a coin. Or maybe you put a coin on a string in it to trick the mechanism, something like that. It, yeah, they. it's only recently that they actually really have ways to prevent that. If you actually work at any one of these arcades now, pretty much every single coin slot has little safety mechanisms in it where they actually have little blades on it so that if uh, you do something with a coin on a string, it'll actually cut the string if you try to pull something back along the same track. Or it has special sensors to make sure that the type and consistency of the metal going through is proper for the coin that's being put in, usually a quarter these days, and not a metal slug of some coin of just some worthless metal. Exactly. And I'm not, again, not a technological person, but I even understand a lot of that's done through electromagnetism anymore, right? I mean, it's not even physical methods to sort coins, because I know where I work, we have a coin acceptor for our copy machine. And I remember our tech guy was talking one day that it, the coins were guided through the machine through electromagnetism rather than through any kind of mechanical apparatus, but I don't know a lot about that. I, I don't know much about that either, but it would make sense that as things went on, if you have a certain level of electromagnetism, and um, most coins aren't magnetic anyway, but there must be they must affect a magnetic field somehow, and if that falls within whatever the tolerances are, things should work. That makes sense. And, you know, back then there wasn't even a coin shoot. I mean, coin shoots didn't even really start becoming a thing until the 20s. So, obviously the coin has to enter into a box, but the way coin machines started to work is that a coin would have to go a certain way down a chute before it would actually trigger the machine to start. But when you're talking about 1870s, 1880s, 1890s coin-op machines, you don't even have that. It's just you put your coin in and it starts. So very primitive technology, very easy to fool. It had an electromechanical switch that got tripped by the coin and told it, you have a credit. Exactly. So very, very easy to fool. So there were two things that were needed here. There needed to be supervision of machines, and there needed to be a venue that was welcoming to women and children because there was a recognition that this was going to be a major part of the audience even back then. Mm -hmm. And the man who finally solved this problem for the first time that we know of. Again, it's always possible that there's some forgotten father out there in any field that goes back over a hundred years, was a man named James Andon. He was the head of a company called the Ohio Phonograph Company. So back in the late 19th century, this was an era of intense trust building mm -hmm. when you had a lot of trust being developed, and especially in technical fields, what would happen is you would have a person that would come along and buy up all the patents to a piece of technology, and then he would have a monopoly by default because, oh because he controls all the patents to the technology. And so Edison invented the phonograph, mm -hmm. but Bell did a lot to improve the phonograph. 
Okay. So we're talking Alexander Graham Bell. He didn't work on it directly, but his company, Mm -hmm. Bell. People he employed. Exactly. And so there were patents on both ends here. Edison had patents. Bell had patents. And then a fellow came along and bought up all those patents and created a single company that had the sole rights to sell phonographs in the United States because he had all the patents and he wasn't going to let anyone else sell them. And then what he did is he divided the country into regions, and then he granted franchises to people to operate, to sell and operate phonographs in individual regions. Okay. So the Ohio Phonograph Company that James Andam controlled was one of these regional franchisees of the North American Phonograph Company. And what James Andam decided to do is he decided he would group together multiple phonograph machines in one storefront and then people could come into this one location and sample recordings on each one because of course each phonograph only had one recording on them we're not to the point where we have multi-selection units yet or jukeboxes yet we're just talking about one recording per phonograph everything's so new that all you really have enough technology for is one record that plays one whatever it is exactly so in 1890, he opened two of these locations. He opened one in Cleveland and one in Cincinnati, kind of attached to his businesses. Mm-hmm. And the one in Cincinnati was opened in a building called the Emory Arcade. That was actually the name of the building. It was mm-hmm. a like a shopping arcade because at the time, if you said arcade, what you were normally talking about was a kind of covered area in the front of a building that a person could walk under. And then you had these shopping arcades where basically set in behind this covered arcade walkway, you know, where the stores in the shopping arcade, this was sort sort of akin to a strip mall now. Exactly. It's kind of a precursor of the modern shopping mall. And so you had shopping arcades and this building was called the Emory arcade. And there are some that think, that this is where the term arcade comes from in terms of a establishment that has coin-operated amusements in it. Right. Now, it's also possible that because arcades, what we now call arcades, were appearing quite often in shopping arcades in bigger cities, it might also be that it just naturally acquired that name as shopping arcades began to get this, these pieces of equipment. But... Mm-hmm. Uh, Billboard magazine, which before it was a solely music publication, was actually a coin-op trade publication. Back in the 1940s, they kind of did a quick and dirty history of the arcade in one of their issues. And the author of that states that the fact that Andam had this establishment in the Emory Arcade building is the reason that we got the name arcade. Okay, makes sense. Mm -hmm. So the phonograph was the first star of the arcade. Then came a piece of equipment called the kinetoscope, which again was invented by Edison's laboratory. Edison himself didn't invent this one like he did the phonograph. It was one of his assistants, William Dickinson, that invented the kinetoscope. But because he was working for Edison, Edison by default gets the patent. Exactly. And the kinetoscope was a film strip machine. So we're not talking about the crank machines that you were talking about from your cartoons at this point. This was a film Mm -hmm. strip machine. And it worked pretty similar to modern film projection, except nothing was being projected. You were just watching it. You know, there was a light shining at the film strip within the box, and then you're peering in the box 
to see the film. It's a natural so it's, evolution from the crank model to just have one where you don't have to crank. Well, at this point, it's actually worked in reverse. This version came before your crank mutoscopes. The mm -hmm. mutoscope was considered superior technology in this period of time because you had control over the rate of playback. Okay. Because since you're spinning the crank, you can stop at a point if you want to stop. You can rewind easily because, of course, rewinding isn't such a simple process with uh, the film strip mechanisms they're using back then. Mm -hmm. So it's actually before the crank-based stuff, which you would think would be more primitive, but was not considered to be a, a better form of technology. Really? Exactly. So actually the mutoscope then supplanted the kinetoscope. Kinetoscope mm. came about in about 1892. The mutoscope came around in 1894. And it was, again, Dickinson that did it. But by this time, he was no longer working with Edison. Edison was not really interested in the mutoscope technology. And so Dickinson ended up actually taking that technology and working with another inventor named Herman Kassler did this other device, the mutoscope, that became really, really huge. It was an incredibly popular form of entertainment because this was the first that most people ever experienced what we consider today cinema. Really? Exactly. I mean, obviously, we're talking about very short things. We're talking minute-long features. It right. may just be a person dancing or something like that. I mean, it's A little be... com comical thing or something like that. Right. But when you had nothing like that before... It's a novelty. It, you want to experience it. The exactly. fact that you could have recorded moving pictures and have that for posterity, effectively, is a complete novelty. It sure is. And sometimes there would even be accompanying soundtracks. A few years later, some inventors started pairing a phonograph to do background music, because obviously this is still in the era of silent film. You're not recording sound when you're shooting your movie. Mm -hmm. And so in the theaters, of course, you would often have accompaniment by a piano or an organ. Can't really have that in a one-on-one -on -one arcade setting. So there were some machines that were actually hooked up with a phonograph to provide a soundtrack while you're watching your little short. Makes sense. So this was the primary form of entertainment in the arcades at the time, but there would be other machines. Again, though, they would mostly be novelty items. There'd be a lot of vending machines. Mm-hmm both food vending machines and machines that would distribute something else, maybe a scented handkerchief, maybe uh, some perfume, maybe a card with a horoscope or a fortune on it, or just a saying on it. Novelty item, stuff that you would buy and for your kids these days. Exactly. And also there would be what are called tester machines. Bars and saloons, even before we had the coin-operated control, would often have contraptions to allow patrons to compete with each other to see who was strongest. Mm -hmm. Maybe it would be something where you had to lift a weight. Maybe it would be something where you had to breathe into a tube to test your lung capacity to see if you could move a needle you know, with your air a certain amount of the ways up. Right. And so these bar patrons would compete with each other to see who was the biggest, best, strongest. And it soon became clear once coin-operated control came into the picture that these would be great things to monetize because bar patrons didn't have to pay anything to use these 
kind of competitive machines. Now, they might establish bets with each other. You know, I'll buy the next round if I lose or something. So a barkeep mm -hmm. might get a little bit of extra custom that way. But it's not like you handed the barkeep a nickel to use the strength tester. No, you just went over and used the strength tester. Or like now where you have to go over and put a quarter in to use a strength tester or are you the most attractive person or whatever it is these days. Exactly. Not strength testers so much anymore, but you still have love tester machines, I guess. I'm not mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> Don't go to bars too much, but those kind of machines, I think, are still occasionally around. So the early coin machine innovators figured out pretty quickly that these would be great things to put coin slots on. So you have a strength testing machine that doesn't activate till you put a nickel in it. Mm -hmm. You have a breath test machine that doesn't activate till you put a nickel in it. And these entered into bars and saloons very quickly as well. And then when the arcades started opening, they also migrated to the arcades. Makes sense. Another very popular type of machine was the electric shock machine, where <laughs> you would stick in a quarter and then you would, uh, well, not a quarter at this point, you'd stick in your nickel and you'd wrap your hands around a couple of pieces of metal and complete the circuit and see how big an electrical jolt you could take. Yeah, but I think like modern versions of this, it's not really electrical anymore because I think there might actually be dangerous. I think the ones that I've ever played with used to be in a Dave and Buster. It really just vibrates at a certain level to sort of simulate it. I think they, they can't legally shock you anymore. No, that's a little dangerous if you're a heart patient, particularly if you have a pacemaker. <laughs> yeah, it leads to unpleasantness. But in the late 19th century... Shocks were considered very healthy. They were very good for steadying the nerves. They had many health benefits. That's why there were things like electric shock treatments in mental asylums. And so these were competitive machines in the sense that you could challenge a friend to see who could take the biggest shock, but they were also just considered to have great health benefits. So it was considered a great thing to be able to put a nickel in a machine and just get a jolt of electricity to get your day going, that kind of thing, like, like we all do. Kids, don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of bad. Uh, those went by the wayside, though they lasted longer than you might think. They really only started going away in the 50s, 1950s. I mean, they weren't as popular as the 20th century went on as they were at the end of the 19th century when they were but insanely popular. But the fact that they were still allowed to even be in operation for the general public, even after, you know, shocking people with potential heart problems or other problems is really, really bad. Yeah, well, you know, they figured it out eventually. Lung testers went away far before that. Once we started having uh, tuberculosis ep epidemics in the early 20th century, people realized that maybe having scores and scores of people all blowing their saliva into the exact same instrument may not be such a great idea. And we don't like dying of tuberculosis, kid. Uh, no, uh, that's kind of bad. So those machines also went by the wayside in the early 20th century, but they were very popular at the time. Another thing that was very popular were coin-operated scales because you didn't have scales in your household back then. Again, scales were too expensive an item, so it was kind of cool to be able to weigh yourself. And oftentimes they would print out your weight so you'd have a little keepsake to take with you. Your weight, whatever object you felt like weighing. Exactly. And, I mean, those persisted, too. I mean, you, there are probably a few really, really out-of-the-way places that still have an old coin-operated scale hanging around today. But, I mean... I know, I know I've watched way too many cartoons for probably someone like me, too. But uh, <laughs> there was an episode of Pink Panther where he's running around and there's the big nose guy who's uh, doing his thing. 
I believe both of them are trying to use one of these scales, and it was just on a single pedestal and a really giant display, and you'd put in a little nickel, and it actually made a point of showing, hey, I got a nickel, and puts it in, and he got his weight, and he got a little card. I remember this. I don't know the exact episode number, but heck, if I find it in my post-editing, I will put it in the show notes. Sure. And this was kind of the first big machine. 1884 was when the first one was patented by a fellow named Percival Everett, who was really the father of coin-op. He was one of the first people to create a lot of different coin-operated machines. And more importantly, he established a lot of companies to sell these machines. So he was a really important person in spreading coin-operated equipment generally. Okay. So... You have the scales, you have the testers, you have the vending machines. Oftentimes, you might have a coin-operated player piano as well, just as a way of providing background music. Again, this is before we had jukeboxes, so you needed other ways to provide coin-operated music. And then you would have the phonographs, and you would have the mutoscopes, and those would be the real focus. And at first, these were all nickel machines. We've been referring mostly to putting nickels in machines. Mm Mm-hmm. Then, in 1901, there was a fellow named Mitchell Mark. He was a proprietor of a mutoscope parlor up in Buffalo, New York. And Buffalo hosted an event that year called the Pan American Exhibition. And so there were a lot of people coming to town, and he had record attendance at his arcade that year. Really? Just made a bunch of money just because there were so many people in town. And he wanted that to continue. So he was thinking to himself, how do I keep the people coming when we don't have all of these out-of-town tourists anymore. And he decided what he should do is he should relocate to a high-foot tra- traffic location. So mm-hmm. there's constantly people moving in and out. And then lower the cost of his machines to a penny. Because if he's in a high-volume area, the losses for people putting a smaller coin in the machine will be offset by the fact that you have so many more people enticed to come in and spend their money because they get so much for so little. Right, and then you can actually get them to spend more overall because Dad goes in there and goes, okay, if I had to pay five cents for me and little Johnny to play, I'll do that maybe three times. But if you can get him to play 15 times, then he's really invested in the game and he's having a great time with his kid. And he goes, oh, what's an extra penny? What's an extra penny? What's an extra penny? So far, he spends, ends up spending 25 cents. Exactly, and so... He pioneered this concept of the penny arcade, which is what we really think of from this period today, is uh, those penny venues. And he founded an arcade chain, Automatic Vaudeville Company. And as he was successful, other entrepreneurs emulated what he was doing. And so you have this penny arcade business. And this was largely a chain business at this time. And the reason for that was product rotation. There weren't that many products coming out all the time. There were a fair number of manufacturers, but it was still very much a cottage industry. So you didn't have kind of a regular release schedule type thing going on. So rotation of product was very important. You wanted to have a few machines at this location, a few machines at that location that are different machines, and then be able to flip-flop them in a couple of months so that the novelty remains for the people in those locations. You can't Mm -hmm. have new machines all the time at all your facilities. You rotate them around. Or you take ones that 
are popular and just sort of cycle them away, sort of like the Disney method of, it's going into the vault, and it's not coming back for 20 years. That's exactly correct. There would be times where they would rotate items back in again, because if they've been gone long enough, people forget about them, and then they're all brand new again. And so it was very important to have a network of arcades in this time period. And so you didn't have so many mom-and-pop operations. Where you did have mom-and-pop operations, they usually had to be a little more risque. This is where you would kind of get some of the naughtier movies. I see. Yes, there was that element. It wasn't a very large element because these were venues that were primarily attempting to be friendly towards women and children because these were going to be big your big spenders. Right. But if you don't have the newest top-of-the-line equipment and reels and recordings to bring in the general public, then maybe you can get a few people in by being just a little bit naughtier. A bit more risque. Exactly. So... The Penny Arcade was huge, kind of between 1895, when the the Mutoscope became big, and 1905, when that first Nickelodeon that I told you about opened up. Mm -hmm. This was one of the primary forms of entertainment for the working class. They couldn't afford to go to the theater. Mm -hmm. They often even couldn't get to a vaudeville show, so they would come to the arcade and they would maybe even just spend a single nickel i mean maybe they would just get change for their nickel and put five pennies in five different recordings and that Mm -hmm. would be all they would do for the day and then maybe they'd come back again next week to see what was new it was a very fleeting form of entertainment it's something we do on our way to something exactly but as long as you kept your mix of recordings and film strips and other machines fresh you could get people to come back again and again. And as long as you located in a high foot traffic area, there'd always be someone coming through your door. So your machines would be making money. There'd always be someone coming through, spending that penny, getting that thing. And the cinema killed it. There's just no other way to put it. The cinema destroyed the original arcade. Really? Well, I mean, if it's all video and then you got this thing where, hey, I get to go to this nice theater, get some popcorn. And it only costs, say, 25 cents to get to watch a full motion thing, a news wheel, and some other stuff. Well, I mean, it would only cost a nickel. I mean, these these were Nickelodeons. I mean, in the beginning, it was just a nickel. So, yeah, especially if it's a nickel, then you're spending a nickel, you're having entertainment for your, your whole family for multiple hours. Exactly. Well, not multiple hours necessarily at this point, because these are still shorter films. I'm encompassing the whole experience. Well, sure. Yet travel time there and back. You're making an afternoon of it. I, I get what you're saying. So the cinema was a whole new way to watch movies, and it was a superior way, projected on a screen like that instead of having to peer into this tiny little slot. And, you know, it was about as cheap, and it was far greater profits for the operators. And at first, the Penny Arcade operators tried to get themselves into the movie business. Mm-hmm. They would install projectors in lofts above their main business area and hope that people would watch the movie and then maybe come downstairs and put a few pennies in the other machines as well, just like movie theaters today still have a few arcade games in them most of the time. 
but the public really wasn't having any of that. They were much happier to go to a custom built movie palace that was more comfortable and more accessible and, and nicer and didn't really want to go to these makeshift loft theaters above these penny arcades. So it didn't take long for the penny arcade to really fall by the wayside. By the end of the first decade of the 20th century, they were basically gone. There were a few left. Mm -hmm. Basically, though, they had to relocate because they didn't get the same amount of foot traffic. So buildings on major thoroughfares, the rent would be way too high. They couldn't take in enough money to pay the rent on a prime location anymore. So they had to go to other locations, you know, off the beaten path. So because they're no longer on your way to some place, you're only going there if you really want to go there. Mm -hmm. And at this point, the only reason you'd really want to go there is to see some nude chicks. (laughs) Quite simply, most penny arcades at this point became very seedy and Mm -hmm. focused very much on racier stuff because you couldn't get that kind of stuff in the cinema. Mm -hmm. There were no pornos in the cinema. (laughs) That was a respectable place of business. So... The arcade persisted a little bit, but it was really dead as a mainstream form of entertainment. And that remained the situation until kind of the very end of the 1920s. To the end of the roaring 20s. Exactly. The arcade wasn't really needed anymore. But a couple of different things happened. First of all, you did have a thriving coin-operated gambling business Mm -hmm. going on throughout this period. Were they slot machines then, or um... they were? Okay. the uh, The first slot machine, again, that we know of, uh, was invented in 1892. It was different than than what we think of as a slot machine today. The first so-called one-armed bandit, the thing we think of today, where you pull a lever and you have spinning reels. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's all digital now. <laughs> there are no reels, but right, but unless you see like an old one, exactly what we think of for the longest time was uh, created by a man named Charles Fay, and we won't get sidetracked in the complete history of the slot machine, but he invented it sometime between 1898 and 1905. Sources are a little vague on when exactly his first Liberty Bell machine was deployed, but it was somewhere in there. He kept it local. He only manufactured very small numbers of them, and he would sell them, really give them, not sell them, directly to saloon operators in the San Francisco area, which is where he was based. Mm -hmm. And then they would split 50-50 the coin take on him. Then a company called the Mills Novelty Company, which had been one of the big coin-operated amusement companies in the 1890s, got a hold of a Fay machine, started mass-producing them around 1905 or so, and then slot machines became really popular. But by the middle of the 1920s Mm -hmm. slot machines had mostly been driven underground they were illegal in most places by that time because even back then people understood that these were machines that basically stole your money basically stole your money exactly so there was concerted effort to ban them and they were mostly gone and at this time slot machines were everywhere it's not like you would go to a casino to play slot machines they would be at the corner store, they would be at the in, barber. Yeah, in at the barber restaurants, hotels, sometimes in penny arcades as well. I mean, you would find mm-hmm. slot machines everywhere. So this was a ubiquitous form of entertainment, and that was kind of the main coin-operated entertainment 
after the the penny arcades fell out of favor. But you had this stigmatization of the machines, both as gambling machines, and then also when you had prohibition start up, Mm -hmm. these were now illegal machines anyway. And bars, which used to be a prime venue for slot machines, were now illegal operations. Mm -hmm. So if my bar, called them speakeasies at this point, if my speakeasy was illegal anyway... Why not just go all the way? Yeah, why not have a slot machine or two as well? And so they did. They're already going to arrest me if they find out over the alcohol. So what not? Just have the one-armed bandit and get some extra money that way in case I get raided. Exactly. And then, of course, slot machines are cash only. And there's nothing that illicit operations love more than a cash only business Mm -hmm. because you can't trace the money. Yep. So, of course, during Prohibition, organized crime took over the liquor business. They also Mm -hmm. took over the slot machine business. They took over the gambling business. Then slot machines really got a bad rap because not only were they illegal, but they were fronts for organized crime and they were major sources of revenue for organized crime. So... Slot machines were very much on the out. So then what you had happen is you had gambling-style machines, games of chance, we'll call them, Mm -hmm. starting to incorporate skill-based elements again because you needed something that you could show took skill to use in order to convince law enforcement that this was not just a random game of chance and that there was some value to it besides just sticking your coin in and hoping to get a payoff. And this is the precursor to pinball machines. That's some of it, yes. Uh, Precursor to pinball is definitely in there. Also, target shooting games. Mm -hmm. Now, these are little target shooting games. At this point, we're talking about something that fits on a countertop, Mm -hmm. something encased in in a small wooden case with a glass top, but with a little gun in it that shoots. Either it shoots your coin, you know, you insert your coin, and then it loads in the gun, and you pull the trigger, and it shoots it into a bullseye. Mm-hmm. Or, as they became more sophisticated, little steel balls that you would shoot shot. into targets. But very small. We're not talking about a full-sized rifle range kind of game. Those existed as well, but it's not what we're referring to that's coming into vogue here in the middle of the 20s. Right. So you're talking about Bagatelle, which is kind of the precursor to pinball. You're talking about these shooting games. You're talking about digger machines crane machines oh the the claws that go down and grab a toy come back up and drop it in and you get your stuffed animal and the claw is so poor at grabbing things that it's a wonder that it even worked (laughs) exactly now they're a little bit different of course back then because of course we're talking about earlier technology and in fact oftentimes they were made to look like actual Cranes, actual digging machines. That's oh, really? kind of where the term crane game came from. Because so they, they would... actually have a big scoop almost. Exactly. And sometimes even a full miniature mock-up that looked like a digging machine that okay. the crane was attached to. So you had these games with just a little bit of skill coming back in because the gambling machines were getting such a bad rap. And you were getting to the point where it looked like you might be able to have coin-operated amusement again, not just coin-operated gambling. Okay. So the watershed moment happened in 1927, and it happened with a company called the Chester Pollard Amusement Company. Mm -hmm. This company was founded by three brothers, the Chester brothers, 
the polar dame. That was actually their mother's maiden name. They just, I presume, wanted another name on the marquee to make it look like there were more people involved and make it a more serious company. But Mm -hmm. it was actually three brothers, the Chester brothers. One of them was a mechanical engineer. One of them was an electrical engineer. And one of them was a very business-oriented guy. So A perfect combination. Exactly. Perfect combination for arcades at the time because that's all the technology and the the business know-how. And they got involved in coin-operated amusements, and they bought the North American rights to a British football game. Soccer. Mm -hmm. We'd call it soccer, but since it's British, they called it football, of course, called Play Football. And this was a larger machine. This was not a countertop machine. This was a floor model. Mm -hmm. And it was wooden uh, with a play field and enclosed in glass. And you had soccer players kind of spread out around uh, the play field, full size, well, not full size in the sense that human size, but they were mannequins. So it was a full soccer player. It wasn't just a portion of a soccer player. And you had goals on either end and you had two levers on the front of the cabinet, little levers, not the, not the type like on a one-armed bandit where you're like pulling towards you, but just little ones that you're pushing up and down. Right. And, Basically, when you pushed your le- lever, it would cause all of the soccer players to kick their leg in unison. Hmm. So, you know, it's almost like foosball, but it's very different from foosball because it's, it's just different mechanical setup. Exactly. And just one lever. You're not controlling individual parts of the table. Right. With... You're not controlling the front row, middle row, row, back row, goalie. You're just controlling everyone kicking at once. Exactly. And then when you inserted a nickel, it would cause a ball to enter the play field, frantically press your levers, and the legs would be moving up and down, and you would try to get that ball to get into the opponent's goal. And you only got one ball per coin. Ah. So if you wanted to play a full game, you had to insert a lot of coins. There There were little beads on it, just like you would find on, say, a foosball table so you could keep your score. Right. And then if you wanted to play a, a longer game, you would have to insert more nickels. So they imported this game, and they tested it at a few locations, and it tested really well. And mm-hmm. then they did convert it to be American football. It was the exact same setup. It's just that they turned all the players into American football-looking players and had end zones. But it worked the exact same way. There was no functional difference. And uh, called it play football. Mm-hmm. And it did really, really well. It was found, you know, arcades were pretty much dead at this point. So it was found in clubs. It was found in hotel lobbies. They even put it on some steamship lines. Huh. It had to be in locations that could accept a bigger, more expensive machine because this was a floor model. It wasn't a countertop model. Right. So you had to actually have dedicated space for the machine to work. Exactly. And it did very well. So they did a couple of follow-up games. They did a golf game that was very popular where you're controlling a little mannequin guy and having him putt into the hole. Mm -hmm. And then they did a two-player horse racing game where you would turn a crank and your whole horse would move round and around and around. And then, you know, whoever completed the best, yeah, could crank the best would win. So they had these bigger sports games and they discovered they were doing really well with that. And then they thought to themselves, what if we had some table sports games too? So these aren't arcade games. This is more, like your air hockey or table tennis style games. Obviously, they're not table tennis and air hockey because we're talking about the 1920s here. Right. But the idea is you would have table games 
where two players would compete in miniature tennis games or miniature baseball games or miniature soccer games on these tables as mm -hmm. well. And these are not coin-controlled things we're talking about now. We're just talking about kind of these athletic tables. And those also did really well. And so then they got to thinking, what if we created a venue mm -hmm. where we gather together a bunch of our table games and we gather together some coin-operated games and we put the coin-operated games in the front of the building to kind of draw people in. All right. And then we have the back area caged off and for the price of a quarter paid at the door, mm -hmm. you could have a half an hour on any of our table games that you want, unlimited play on any of these table games. That's certainly an interesting idea. Exactly. And so they created the concept called Sportland. That's what they named this concept because it was very focused on these table games, these sports games. They would have crane games and, and pinball and whatnot as well, Bagatelle at that time, but focused on these sports concepts and maybe some athletic machines as well because there were such things as coin-operated punching bags back then and coin-operated treadmills. There were other kind of athletic machines as well. So they created this athletic venue, mm -hmm. the Sportland, and they opened uh, their first one in New York. They were New York-based, and it went over really well. And you see, the important thing is they opened their first one. They did a few tests in existing locations, then they opened their first one in Brooklyn in a kind of out-of-the-way area. But the concept was popular enough to draw people in. So the Penny Arcade had failed because people were not willing to go out of their way for that kind of entertainment anymore, and they couldn't afford rent on a high-volume location. Right. Well, now the Sportland concept was popular enough that people would go out of their way to go play these tables and go play these coin-operated games of skill. Right. And so the arcade was back. This was the kind of new Sportland arcade concept was kind of the genesis of what we think of as the arcade today because this was a venue for games. Yeah, you're not going there purely for watching videos, looking at pictures. You are going there to play a game. You're going there to do a contest with your friends, with your kids, with your family, whatever to see who's the best at whatever. Let's play some air hockey. Who's the best at doing this? Let's play some pinball. Who can get the highest score? Let's play some football. Let's see who can get the highest score and beat the other person up. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. That's, that's exactly true. Obviously, some of those concepts like air hockey weren't quite around then, but the idea is the same. That's exactly correct. And then, you know, they started opening these locations about 1930. And mm -hmm. this is right when the Depression is starting. Right, when the stock market crashed. Exactly. The stock market crashes in 29, so the Depression is starting. And this was the final piece that was needed to bring the arcade back. Because now we're in a situation where cheap entertainment is so very important again. Just mm -hmm. like the original Penny Arcades became big because you had an immigrant working class that couldn't afford to go to the theater. Right. Now, movie theaters even are an awfully expensive luxury for the average out-of-work person. Right. They can barely put food on the table. Why am I going to go to your movie theater? Exactly. And so this is the point that pinball comes in. And the history of pinball is its whole own thing, so we won't get into that. But the important thing to know is that these sports games I was talking about and these crane games that I'm talking about from the 20s, 
they're big floor models. Mm-hmm. They're rather expensive to buy by the operator or the location owner. Right. And they cost a nickel to play. But pinball, at the very beginning, was a small countertop game mm-hmm. with no moving parts other than the plunger to launch the ball. There are no flippers back then. There are no bumpers back then. All there really is is an glass-enclosed, slightly inclined play field with holes surrounded by nests of pins. Sort of like a pachinko machine. Exactly, because pachinko and pinball have a common ancestor in Bagatelle. Mm-hmm. Really, the only difference between Bagatelle and pinball, and really this is a technical distinction we make today rather than a distinction being made at the time, the only real difference is that Bagatelle was not a coin-operated game, and pinball was, essentially. <laughs> Bagatelle didn't take quarters, and pinball does. Right. Uh, in the very beginning here. And so you're just talking about you have a plunger and you launch a small steel ball with the plunger. It falls through the nest of pins and maybe enters into a scoring hole. And you keep track of your own score. Each hole has a different value. And mm-hmm. there's no automatic scorekeeping at this point. Everything's still very primitive. So you even have to keep track of your own score. And you would get, you know, five balls for nickel or ten balls for nickel or something like that at the start. But then as pinball met the depression, very quickly... Pinball machines came down in price. A fellow named David Gottlieb started mass producing them and was able to do so fairly cheaply. His D. Gottlieb and company, of course, lasted for a very long time, well into the video game era. Mm-hmm. Then he was followed into the market by a fellow named Ray Maloney, who founded a little company called the Bally Manufacturing Company to put out his pinball tables. And mm-hmm. I think we've heard of them as well. We may have. And so you had this rush, and the machines were cheap. And they were small because they were countertop and they had very few moving parts. So they were easy to keep in working order and you could buy them for $16 and 50 cents for a table. And then you could charge a penny for those because you could recoup your cost in pennies on Mm -hmm. a big sports machine or on a big crane. You had to charge nickels because you'd never recoup your cost on pennies Mm -hmm. pinball machine. You could. So even in the middle of the Depression, 1650 a table, and that was for a Bally or a Gottlieb table, who were kind of the leading companies in the industry. You could probably get a table from a smaller company cheaper than that. There were around 200 companies that released at least one pinball table in 1930s. And that would be probably about, what, $1,000 now, give or take? Well, even less than that. I mean, closer to $290 in today's money. At one point, I tried to look into getting my own pinball machine. Depending on the kind of pinball machine you want, it's about anywhere between two grand to five to ten grand for a brand new one. Some of the old ones you can get for one to three grand, depending on what it is. The really popular old ones like Star Trek or Funhouse, the the really popular ones those would still cost like 5k or more. So these machines, you know, 1650 or cheaper, even in the middle of the depression, you could afford to buy a few and you would recoup your money very quickly. And so pinball is what really spread the penny arcade and brought the arcade back, brought the sportland back during this time period. And again, people didn't have any money, but even people with no money need a little entertainment in their lives. Of course. So People, even if they're just going backwards and forth from looking for a job and and whatnot, might Mm -hmm. stop into a penny arcade or into a bar because after 1933, for 
prohibition's gone and we can have bars again. Yay! Might stop into a bar or an arcade and put a few pennies in a machine. So the arcade companies were making money hand over fist. You could make over $800 a week in really, the middle of the Great Depression operating pinball machines and cranes. Because and cranes that's $800 were also... back in 1930s money, which means adjusting for inflation, you're, you're at least 10 times that now. Yeah. 800 a week, one penny at a time. Is insane. Exactly. That means that 100 plays for a buck. Yeah, something like that. And obviously it's not all on one table because you'll have tons of, of pinball tables lined up. But And you might have some nickel machines in there as well. So some machines are taking nickels. So it doesn't necessarily take all of that. But yeah, so these machines were huge in the Depression. And they were in arcades, they were in bars, they were in drugstores, they were in candy shops, barbershops, tobacco stores, restaurants, roadside stands. I mean, you name it, they were everywhere. And, of course, pinball evolved during the decade. It got more complex. You didn't get flippers until after World War II. But mm -hmm. you got bumpers, you got sound effects, you got electricity, you got automatic scoring, you got other stuff come Blinky in. Blinky lights. Blinky lights, absolutely. You got other stuff come in as the decade went on. So... That was the golden age of pinball, and it was the golden age of the arcade. Mm -hmm. And then World War II happened. Yeah, that kind of messed things up for a lot of people. Yeah, so you had a couple of things going on here. First of all, obviously, during the war, production of new machines had to stop because mm -hmm. all manufacturing was devoted towards the war effort. Right. There were a few companies that would actually do refurbishing of old tables. They would strip the electrics and the mechanical elements out of old machines. They'd kind of hack together a new play field. Mm -hmm. So there'd be a different play field configuration, but with old parts scavenged from other machines, and you'd stick that into an old cabinet, and then you'd kind of have a new machine. You'd probably take like three machines, cannibalize all the working parts that can work between the three, and maybe make one working machine. Exactly, and then put uh, a brand new play field on it because you could make a play field pretty cheaply. So yeah, the play field would be new. with some holes in it. Exactly. So the play field would be new and then everything else would be used. And there were a couple of companies that did that. That's how the Williams Manufacturing Company got its start, which oh, is really? another very important company straight up through the video game era and beyond and stayed, of course, very huge in pinball. Became the premier pinball company in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, back in the day, it used to be Bally's, Williams, and Stern. That's right. And uh, Gottlieb up until uh, the video game crash as well. Mm -hmm. Bally was kind of the big company in the 30s. Mm -hmm. Gottlieb was very big in the 30s too, but those were kind of the big ones. And then after World War II, Gottlieb rose to dominate. They were the Cadillac of pinball. They just completely dominated the industry. Right. Then Bally took over in the mid-70s because they were the first to start licensing Started mm -hmm. with Wizard, based on the Pinball Wizard album and movie, and moved on from there. And then they were also early into Solid State, which gave them a heads up, a head start. And right. so then Bally was the leader until after the video game crash when Williams overtook them. And then Williams remained the leader in the industry right up until the industry itself essentially disappeared. And of course now the leader is Stern because there's essentially only Stern. There is another company that very recently started making a small number of machines. but Yeah, for a while there, it was just Stern. I was actually considering getting a pinball machine from them at one point. 
Exactly. So that's kind of the quick and dirty on that. And so you had the war, which obviously curtailed all production, but you also had a real backlash develop in the 30s as the 30s wore on against pinball. Hmm. You have to remember that at this point, slot machines are completely controlled by organized crime. Right. And slot machines are pretty much illegal. Unless you happen to be in a high crime area. Or if you're in Nevada, because at this point, I'm not sure if they were re-legalized yet in Nevada at this point or not, but they might have been. They were illegal for a time in Nevada, and then they weren't. Right. So now you have this other coin-operated machine that's becoming really big with everybody called Pinball. Mm -hmm. And at this point, Pinball's not a game of skill. There are no flippers. You can kind of bang on the cabinet a little bit, but the tilt mechanism's already been invented, just like in modern pinball machines. So you can only bump it so much or so hard. So it's basically you launch your ball onto the play field and you hope it lands in the hole. Now, there's no remuneration most of the time, except Bally does start making payout pinball machines. Really? They start with a machine called Rocket. Mm-hmm. And it has a dry cell battery that powers a payoff slot if you get your ball in the in the right hole. So there start to be payout machines manufactured alongside amusement machines. Mm -hmm. And law enforcement doesn't like that. Basically assumes that the entire pinball industry is organized crime's way of getting around the ban on slot machines. Hmm. Now, near as we can tell. Organized crime was never really in the coin-operated amusement business. Mm -hmm. Now, there are certainly individual examples of distributors that were fronted by organized crime figures or locations owned by organized crime that would have machines in them. So you can't say that organized crime was completely outside of coin-operated amusements. But right. for the most part, they were, because what they were doing with gambling and prostitution and alcohol and later on drugs was a lot more profitable than coin-operated amusements. Mm -hmm. It was, quite frankly, too small potatoes <laughs> for them to get involved It's with. not worth it to them if I'm trying to do my massive crime ring if you're doing pinball versus one-armed bandit. Exactly. So they weren't in it that much. But law enforcement was convinced that they were. So pinball started getting banned in a lot of places in the late 30s and early 1940s, including the three biggest cities in the country, New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. Chicago is where all the machines were made. Gottlieb and Bally, Williams, United, Genco, Chicago Coin, all of the pinball companies just about made their games in Chicago. And if you can't Tell them where you make them, and making them there probably is questionably legal, depending on the atmosphere. Exactly. So pinball wasn't illegal all over the country. Far from it. But there were a lot of legal issues. So pinball started to fade a little bit. It still remained big. Mm -hmm. But it started to fade a little bit. Crane games, which had been hugely popular in the 30s and 40s, were actually outlawed entirely by a federal act in 1951, the Johnson Act. Really? Yes. The transport of them 
was outlawed, I should say, because the Johnson Act was passed under the Congress's power of the Commerce Clause so they could regulate interstate commerce. So they made it illegal to transport these machines over state lines. Yeah, unless they were being transported someplace they were already legal, which at this time a lot of states had outlawed these kind of machines. Crane games only remained outlawed for a couple of years because then crane games were modified to be less gambling-like and not have cash in them and whatnot and became more like what we have today in terms of crane machines. But for a brief period of time, they were outlawed altogether. Yeah, I was surprised when you said that because I would think like they're pretty much ubiquitous now in any lower-end restaurant or something will probably have it. Exactly. And, you know, they have the stuffed animals and whatnot. Back in these days, yes, they would occasionally have candy or whatnot in them, but they would also actually often have just money in them. Oh, really? <laughs> exactly. A little box of money. So it's a true gambling device. And without too much skill, <laughs> there's not too much skill involved in using a, a crane machine. Mm -hmm. So you had these machines being outlawed. And so coin-operated amusements kind of fell back a little bit. You started not seeing pinball machines in bars as much for a period of time here. We're talking the late 40s and into the 50s. This is when the shuffle alleys that we talked about in an earlier podcast right. and the bumper pool that we talked about in an earlier podcast kind of started to become more important because, again, these were seen as more games of skill. You did, after the war in 1947, have flippers appear on pinball for the first time, so that helped pinball not go away entirely but they were still making gambling pinballs in the 50s too they were making bingo machines which was basically launch your ball onto a play field that has a bunch of holes with numbers by them arranged like a bingo score scorecard and hope that you get balls in enough holes to form a bingo mm -hmm. like on a like on a bingo sheet so there was still the gambling games so there was still that stigma arcades again fell into decline after the war because you had the population dispersing. Right. You have the inner city falling apart. You have the suburbs growing. You have the interstate highways. You have the automobile center culture. You didn't really have arcades in the suburbs. You would have fun spots. You would have drive-in movie theaters. You would have skating rinks. You would have swimming pools. You would have bowling alleys. Bowling became very popular in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And these venues would often have some coin-operated games in them. Usually by three or four. Exactly. And your neighborhood bar or malt shop may have a shuffle alley. In some places may still have a pinball machine or two. And not much more than that. The bar business was mostly in vending machines, especially cigarette vending machines and jukeboxes. Hmm. And then in the 1960s, pool halls started coming popular again pool had been popular before the war had kind of gone into a decline during the depression and the immediate post-war became popular again and pool tables would sometimes be coin operated because then an attendant doesn't have to worry about monitoring it you know stick your dime at this point we're talking dime machines mm -hmm. and it would release the balls so that you could play a game of pool or right. you had the bumper pool games so you had pool you had vending you had jukeboxes really huge amusement became less of a thing and arcades really fell by the wayside you had a few inner city arcades you didn't have much in suburbia you mostly had fun spots and you might have playlands in a discount store or a department store but the playlands would really be focused on things for little kids you'd have a lot of 
rides. This is kind of the period of time where coin-operated rides first became really big, was in the mm-hmm. 50s. Something for toddlers, one, two, three-year-olds. Exactly. And, you know, teenagers may play some of the shuffle alleys or pinballs uh, that are on location in a fun spot or, or a malt shop or something. But arcades, not so much. This was, again, another period where the arcade was really in decline. And what really brought the arcade back this time was the shopping mall, the rise of the shopping center, the fully enclosed shopping center. The super mega mart. Exactly. And by this point, arcades had a really seedy reputation again. Mm -hmm. But there was a fellow named Jules Millman. He came up with a new idea for shopping mall arcades. He would ban food and beverages, Hmm. ban smoking, ban all of these things that could be used to make a mess or to make an environment that was not as nice. Mm -hmm. He would make sure they were well lit, and he would make sure that there were always attendants on duty, keeping an eye on things. Okay. This was his idea for a new family-friendly shopping mall arcade. And he was a Chicago guy, which is not surprising since arcade games come out of Chicago. Mm -hmm. And so he opened his first one in a Chicago suburb. He called these things Carousel Time, and he founded a company called American Amusements, Mm-hmm. in order to start expanding with this carousel time concept further afield. And a few years later, Bally bought the company, and then they changed the name of the arcades to Aladdin's Castle, hmm. which is a name that I would think would be familiar to some of our listeners. Hopefully some of you. <laughs> At least anyone who's uh, in their 20s and up. Exactly. They were, for a period of time, pretty ubiquitous. There used to be hundreds of them across the nation. And so this was the revival of the arcade. And so the arcade kind of shifted again. In the Depression, it was just as likely to be adults at arcades as it was children. Mm -hmm. Everybody was going there for kind of a quick fix entertainment. All all ages. Exactly. In the 50s, you really got a shift towards coin-operated amusements being more kid-focused, which was a natural evolution because adults had a lot more money now, so they don't need something like arcade games as an amusement just because they're cheap. Right. And also, you have this baby boomer generation. You have a lot of kids suddenly. So everybody that's in entertainment businesses is doing what they can to to get into that market. Right. If you got... Every family has three, four kids. You definitely want to get in on that because that's three, four little Johnnies and Susies wanting to spend a nickel. Exactly. So now the arcade is kind of this family-friendly venue. It's kind of this idea that if you're going to the shopping mall, you can leave your kid at the arcade because these arcades always have lots of attendance. You Mm -hmm. can leave your kid at the arcade while you're going shopping and he can pass the time, he or she can pass the time playing uh, some pinball games or some target shooting games, or, of course, very quickly, video games, which are now starting with Pong in really 1973. The first few were sold in late 1972, but effectively 1973. Right. Are now starting to come in. And so the video game and the shopping mall arcade, which started just slightly before it, enter into this very symbiotic relationship. Because the nice thing about these video games is that they are Mm high-tech. This is integrated circuits, and a few years later, microprocessors, and all of these great technologies. And flashing lights and big screens with really vector graphics. And it 
feels futuristic and new and not attached to those dirty old pinball machines with their organized crime people. It's the future, and we want our kids to be involved in the future and technology, not those shady, shady pinball and gambling machine like those mobsters from the 30s. Exactly. So it feels legitimate in a way that pinball didn't. Now, a few years later, pinball finally becomes legitimate, too, as they move to solid state. And as it becomes clear the mob's not involved, pinball starts becoming a more legitimate form of entertainment in the late 70s as well. But here in the early 70s, when pinball still got this bad reputation, and yet a couple other things come along at the same time, because air hockey also comes along at the exact same time. The full proper air hockey. Yes, real air hockey, just as we would consider air hockey today, comes out in 1973. And while foosball had been around previous to this, Mm -hmm. there's a real foosball boom happening in 73, 74 as well. So it's important to remember that at first, it's not just video games coming in. There's several new things coming in all at the same time. There's quiz games, which started in 1968 with Computer Quiz, which was a solid Mm -hmm. state. I'm sorry, it came out in 1967, but then it went solid state in 1968. So there was this quiz game boom. There was a new wave of more sophisticated electromechanical machines, Mm -hmm. driving games and shooting games that used advanced techniques, advanced animation, and whatnot that looked a lot more realistic and a lot more futuristic. You had air hockey and foosball coming in, and then you had the first video games coming in. So this was just one technology alongside several others, but together they created something that seemed more futuristic, more kid-friendly, and less related to that old slot machine organized crime thing. And so you had the shopping mall arcade coming in at the same time as these newly legitimate categories of games, including video games, are coming in. Right. And this is a catalyst for the new arcade boom. So Aladdin's Castle expands very aggressively. There are other chains expanding at the same time. Some of the manufacturers even get in on it. Sega starts operating a lot of arcades in the mid-70s. There are other companies getting in. Atari even puts a few out. And... You have this brand new arcade concept, and this is kind of what we would think of as an arcade even into the 70s and and 80s and beyond. Now, it becomes more and more video-centric after Space Invaders. Right. And then after the crash, it goes back to pinball a bit, with pinball and video games kind of on equal footing. And that's also about the same time you get the massive video game arcade dedicated halls, right? How do you mean by... I'm thinking sort of like you didn't... You, they weren't necessarily part of a mall, but they would be sort of like their own independent building, and you'd have rows upon rows upon rows of pinball and video games. Oh, sure. You would definitely have some of that going on as well. And of course, you know, another new wrinkle that happened in the late 70s, early 80s was the Chuck E. Cheese concept, which Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari, pioneered, because the arcade was very much a teenage hangout. Mm-hmm. This is where the teenagers went to play games. And so it wasn't really friendly for young kids. And so the Chuck E. Cheese concept was, let's have a place where young kids can play games. So you're broadening the audience in that way. Because arcades were really, they ended up being where, this is where I have my teenager who's 13 to 20-something playing out. But 
really below 13 on average. You don't really want your kid to go there because it might be tougher, rougher crowd. Who knows? Exactly. And you have Chuck E. Cheese's, which is geared specifically for little kids. And it's geared. You got ball pitch. You got a little animatronic show. You got games that are more geared towards something that kid, little kids can do. They're lower down. Mm-hmm. You got something that's right size for a kid to pick up and just bop something on the head. Exactly. So this is the arcade. This is how the arcade really is in the United States. Uh, the shopping mall arcade, obviously they spread to other places like strip malls and whatnot too, but it's kind of the basis. And it's just the games that change. It's it's video through the crash. Then it's video and pinball more equally in the middle of the 80s. Then redemption games come in huge at the end of the 80s. That's the kind of game where you put in a coin and it's kind of quick in, quick out. It awards you tokens or tickets mm-hmm. if... Uh, light lands on the right circle or, you know, the token pushing machines where it pushes tokens down and, and you win some, you know, quick in, quick out. Or right. also games like Skee-Ball or Whack-A-Mole that are redemption-oriented where you get tickets after you play the exchange for prizes. Redemption became huge in the late 80s. I'm surprised you didn't think of that as being uh, gambling. Yeah, I don't know the legal side of that story at this point very well. I think because it awarded tickets and all the kids got in return were really, really cheap little prizes. You're not getting cash as a reward because you're getting what is effectively trinkets. Exactly. So it's not such a big deal. And I mean, there's usually some button you have to press at a certain time or whatever. There's still a skill element no matter how small no matter how tiny it is. Or how loaded the game is against you. Exactly. Like crane games where they deliberately, as you were saying earlier, make the cranes so that they barely pick up anything. But still, technically, you're navigating a, yeah. a crane to get something. So key, I mean, it's, it's hard for the average person to do it if you don't play it a lot. But I've seen people who've been able to get perfect scores on ski ball regularly because they know just the amount of force to do it for that for a wooden ball to get in there. Yeah. And so Redemption kind of, there are a few things, there's still a lot of debate over what really killed the arcade, but by the mid-90s, home games were becoming much better, much more sophisticated. It used to be that home systems could never compete graphically with arcade games. Arcade games were always a step ahead. When you had Atari, very primitive 8-bit system, you had far more advanced, more colorful 8-bit arcade games. When you had the NES in with its 8-bit processor and more advanced graphics capabilities, you had 16-bit arcade games. Mm -hmm. When the Genesis and the Super Nintendo were out, arcades were starting to go to polygons and you're starting to get 3D games. So they were always a little step ahead. By the middle of the 90s, they really couldn't anymore. Mm -hmm. They did other things to try to stay ahead. You would have bigger screens. You would have interactive cabinets. You would have like uh, the Alpine Ski Game by Namco, where you're actually standing on skis. You'd, th- you'd have person-sized controllers for it. Exactly, or you'd have the guns of various types. You'd point at the screen. So they. Would- I, I think even in the modern arcades, like Dave & Buster's, one that I was recently at, you actually had a Star Wars game where you're doing a little flight rail shooter, but it is completely depth of field ah. sight. 
So it's something that you can't really do at home because it's right. such a big screen that it's like your entire field of vision and it's all designed so that you sit there in that chair, your entire field is, is that. It's like being at an IMAX or right. an IMAX uh, semi-circular screen. Omnimax? Omnimax, that's it. Yeah, Thank like you. being in an Omnimax. So there are still tricks that arcade manufacturers, arcade game manufacturers try to use, but graphically there's no longer a divide. Mm-hmm. So you've got that. You've got the social aspect kind of starts getting replaced by networked gaming because by the middle of the 90s, people can do networked gaming at home. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, in Japan, it's interesting. Japan went far stronger for networked arcade games. And they went through a real vogue period where they had these gigantic games where multiple people are playing each other at once. But in the United States, we never went into network games in the arcades in a very big way. I think the most I've ever seen is usually you just have racers. Mm-hmm. That's it. Exactly. So they started losing their technological edge. They started losing their social edge because people could play games and socialize through networks. Mm-hmm. And Redemption had really gotten carried away. And I think there was some fatigue amongst parents. The arcade operators loved Redemption games because it's all about what you're making, kind of your your profit per minute. Arcades mm-hmm. are all about your profit per minute how much money you're getting in a machine. And the great thing about redemption games is they are always over within seconds. Something mm-hmm. like skee-ball takes a little longer, but some of the really basic redemption games are over in seconds. When you have just arcade and pinball games, when you have video and pinball games, little Johnny's dollar may last him 15 minutes, half an hour, if he's really good at a particular pinball game or something. Whereas now, little Johnny's dollar with redemption games lasts him for five minutes. If that. (laughs) If that. Arcade operators love that. Parents get annoyed by that. So Redemption kind of burned out the market a little bit. The games weren't as compelling versus home games anymore. And so arcades really went into a decline. So the shopping mall arcade is is almost dead at this point. I mean, there are a few out there. I mean, the the only thing I know as far as arcade machines go is you got theaters. They have like a little play palace. You got malls that may have a little arcade machine area. But often not anymore. Often not. You have a few specialty destinations, Dave and Buster's. Uh, locally, we have a place called The Edge, which is a movie theater arcade thing geared to try and be a destination spot for the entire family. Mom and dad go to see a movie, have food at the bar, watch some sports have the kids go play arcade and laser tag. Exactly. And if you look at the games that these places have, obviously they sometimes have newer games too, but you'll still see Time Crisis cabinets on location. You'll mm-hmm. still see San Francisco Rush cabinets on location. We're talking about games that you'll at this point... You'll see Terminator 2. Yeah. We're talking about games that at this point are decades old because there's... Games that you and I have played when we were kids the, at least half of them are games that you and I have already played. Exactly, because at this point, there's very little being produced in the United States. Now, in Japan, game centers have declined as well, and they are not as big as they were even 10 years ago, but there's still more manufacturing going on. But the Japanese companies have given up on the U.S. market because it's not profitable. Almost no Japanese games come over here anymore. Sega is a little different just because they have such a big U.S. presence generally, but... Other companies, Capcom, Konami, and whatnot, they don't even bother anymore. Mm -hmm. And 
there's very few people making the games anymore in the U.S. I mean, there's Raw Thrills, which is Eugene Jarvis's company. He's known as the creator, defender, and Robotron, Robotron 2084 back in the golden age of video games. And now he owns a company that still puts out games like the Terminator Salvation game that was out a couple of years ago and stuff like that. And there's Global VR, which is a company that specializes in taking console properties and turning them into arcade games, which is kind of funny because it used to be that arcade games would become ported to consoles. Now there's mm. a company that takes console games and ports them to arcades. <laughs> Well, it seems like, from what you told me from the entire history of arcade, is that there's really a lot of, it's almost like a mulching period that they have between different eras. You had Penny, I look at some video and some sound era, mm -hmm. then arcades pretty much dies out, mm -hmm. it comes back, you have the Penny arcade, I want to play actual games. Mm -hmm. Pinball and the like. Pin, pinball and the like. That sort of dies after a while, mm -hmm. and then it comes back with more electronic games, video games, and then it died again. Exactly. And could there be a future for arcades? I mean, that's difficult to say. I think they would have to come up with something new and exciting that can't be done in the home. I mean, virtual or augmented reality might be a good concept for that once we figure it out, because obviously... Virtual reality and augmented reality are coming into the home right now uh, with Oculus and with Sony's Morpheus and HoloLens from Microsoft. But these kinds of things are probably more effective and more impressive if you have a lot of space. And so maybe if virtual reality takes off in the home or augmented reality takes off in the home, that's something that could be a driver for location-based gaming again. But they need there, there something. There needs to be something that is a major transition, a really a not just a evolution. It's just sort of like from what you've listed to me before is it's almost like you had three distinct eras, mm -hmm. maybe four. Yeah, um, three, three or four distinct eras of arcade where they were very drastically different from each other. And it seems like right now we're in the middle of one of those mulching periods where it's gone for a while practically gone i mean you, you sure. still got some arcade stuff out there and but... that's always the way i mean in those other periods they never completely died off either right but they pretty much just they're like in a mulching phase mm -hmm. and until something comes about by someone someone comes up with the right idea maybe even one of you listeners will come about and say hey if i do this i can get people to come in and not do it at home because it's expensive enough that you don't want to have it or it takes up enough space that you don't want to have it at home. So I'll spend the time and the money to go out to your special location and enjoy it. I really couldn't put that any better myself. All right, Alex. So what do you want to cover next time? Well, you know, it's been kind of fun talking about the arcade here, uh, but we've really been keeping it to the U.S. experience. Mm -hmm. And... When it comes to arcade video games, obviously a huge part of the story is what went on in Japan. And even today, arcades, which are called game centers over in Japan, are still a big part of the market, though. They've seen their declines as well. And so I was thinking we could continue with this arcade theme and take a step back and look at the development of arcades in Japan. Essentially, what we just covered here, except from the Japanese standpoint. Exactly. It's a shorter history in terms of period of time but it's 
very interesting in its own way and plays a big role in how the video game industry developed generally. All right, sounds great. We'll see you next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Rollum Music, found at freemusicarchive.org used under a Creative Commons attribution license.